0: Unfucking the Republic is brought to you by Sam C and our buddy Crin, Unfucking insane level members of the show. And today's episode is brought to you by Unfucking pro Kertik Apache. To become a member of the show, head to buymeacoffee.com UNFTR. And don't forget, you can also support us by purchasing our native roasted coffee blends at UNFTR.com. Every purchase goes to support the show and the native entrepreneurs on the Poospatuck Reservation in New York.
1: A note to our listeners who might be sensitive to irony or distraught by an apparent and profound lack of self-awareness on the part of the white male host with a teeny tiny... Uh,
0: whoa! Uh, hold up.
1: Platform.
0: Oh. Well, um, yeah. So, for the record, it's not that tiny. We're huge in Lebanon.
2: When the world is a mean and nasty little place, finding the truth can be a little tricky. Don't go punch yourself in the face, just listen to it unfucking quickie.
3: People that talk about cancel culture never seem to shut the fuck up about it. Like there's more speech now than ever before. It's not you can't say, it's that when you say it, look, The internet has democratized criticism. What do we do for a living? We talk shit. We criticize. We postulate. We opine. We make jokes. And now other people are having their
0: say. Hey, how about some pure punditry? In this week's installment of How to Lose Friends and Disappoint People, we're talking about the independent platform media culture, mostly of the male persuasion. So yeah, much of this will drip with irony as I, a white male with a small but growing platform, attempt to mansplain how to think about other men with platforms. 99 and I have been kicking around this topic in show notes of late with much of our discussions hitting the cutting room floor as she does her best to prevent me from working things out with my mouth instead of my pen. But I felt like on the heels of our isms episode, it was as good a time as any to dive in. As usual, we're going to layer in a bunch of context about the broader media landscape to set up this discussion. The link between our isms episode and today is to talk about the dangers of fanaticism and dogma and of attaching our personal belief systems to personalities with platforms or otherwise. This is dicey territory that at times will challenge your deep and abiding love for this show.
4: I hate this already.
0: At other times, my criticism of other pundits in the industry will seem kind of meta.
1: This whole journey has been meta.
0: Ultimately, I have the same intent here as I do with the framing of our socioeconomic and political shows, to put the power back into your hands to be discerning. There are a few themes that we'll touch on today. Sourcing, blind spots, responsibility, bias, and the power dynamics of information. Now, my personal relationship with the three quickie subjects today range from significant to peripheral. Now... I don't know any of them personally. I have the same relationship most of you do with them. As a liberal man of a certain age, John Stewart has been an important figure in my life for a very long time. And as a consumer of thinking person's comedy, I've loved Dave Chappelle at various points over the years. And as a, going to reveal something personal here, ardent lover of the sweet science, Joe Rogan has been in my consciousness for years. So I'll explain that last part quickly. My favorite team is the New York Mets. I am a diehard but my favorite sport is boxing. Not MMA or any of the other combat sports, boxing. I'm a purist at heart and rarely miss a big bout. And I'm keenly aware of the detractors of this or any other combat sport, so I'm not preparing a defense of it. I'm merely pointing out that for years, I disliked anything in the combat arena that wasn't the sweet science. So by extension, I thought of Rogan in passing, but was certainly aware of him. I just wanted to frame my personal bias here. Now, the reason I think this episode, this discussion in general has a place in our feed among social and economic justice shows is because we are what we consume. We'd like to imagine ourselves as free thinking beings of pure objectivity, but every thought we possess has roots in cultural, educational, racial, environmental, and geographic bias. And while I can say without equivocation that listeners of this show are far more deliberate and discerning in their media consumption, each of us still carries inherent biases. And as 99 and I have alluded to in the past couple of episodes, there's a growing toxicity among the pundit class that deserves some attention. We've carved out space to recognize the infighting on the so-called left in particular because that's the perspective that we come from. And why would the left engage or anyone engage in tearing another pundit down? Because it's great for numbers. Look at Jimmy Dore's YouTube downloads when he's taking on a topic versus when he's taking down a fellow leftist. The results are undeniable.
3: You know, like I heard Joe Rogan was saying. He 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 says, "What do you what do you busting a my balls?" I took
5: COVID. Yeah, and he goes. And I'm I took horse
3: dewormer. Yeah, and a doctor gave it to me. Go, well, well, a doctor would also give you a vaccine. So why, <laughs> why, why why why
2: take horse dewormer? My friends, I give you, Jenk Uger oh, no. of the Young Turks, claiming he could beat Joe Rogan in a fight. Did you do that because you supported Bernie Sanders, or did you do that because you expected some gimme for TYT in return? Now Charlie Kirk. had a rough couple of days ladies and gentlemen. I've never done, we've realized we've never really done a rebuttal of of The Daily Show. Do you like Candace Owens or do you absolutely detest her? Do you like me or do you absolutely loathe me?
4: And I I can't stand that he positions himself as this moral fighter for progressive values when he and I both know the kind of behavior he engaged in when he was working here.
2: So anyway she's a self-pitying mean girl and now she's falsely accusing me of something uh, that didn't happen because Jake ran for Congress but this was a regular p- part of their show and I used to produce it and host it and it was called Where uh, Who's Who's Campbell Toe?
0: We're awash in punditry from podcasts and YouTube to cable television and national radio punditry is everywhere and along a pretty wide spectrum. On the left, you've got Jimmy Dore, The Young Turks, Sam Cedar, Bill Maher, Lee Camp, Don Lemon, David Packman, Rachel Maddow, Crystal Ball, Keith Olbermann, Al Franken, Kara Swisher, John Favreau, Chris Hayes, Lawrence O'Donnell, Mehdi Hassan, Brian Tyler Cohn, Joe Scarborough, Lester Holt, Brian Williams, Ezra Klein, Tom Hartman, John Oliver, John Stewart, Maureen Dowd, Ariana Huffington, and more. Everyone is fighting or at least trying to chip away at the others to steal audience and be the alpha lib.
1: So in a way, aren't you doing the same thing here by putting Jon Stewart, Dave Chappelle, and Joe Rogan in the title of the episode? Aren't you just fishing for listeners by leveraging the notoriety they've built?
0: Just one of the many confusing inconsistencies and meta aspects of this particular show, Manny.
1: Ah, okay. So then it's okay.
0: No, not at all. Now, over on the right, you've got Dave Rubin, Stephen Crowder, Ben Shapiro, Dan Bongino, Charlie Kirk, Matt Walsh, Steve Bannon, Megan Kelly, Laura Ingram, Fucker Carlson, Sean Hannity, Michael Knowles, Mark Levin, Dave Rubin, Candace Owens, Glenn Beck, Jordan Peterson, Adam Carolla, Andrew Claven, Brett Baer, Greg Gutfeld, Bill O'Reilly, Keith and Kevin Hodge, Tim Pool, Dinesh D'Souza, Michael Savage, Brian Kilmeade, Liz Wheeler, Tommy Lauren, Dennis Prager, and more. Both sides have tried to claim Russell Brand, Joe Rogan, and Matt Taibbi at various times, and no one knows what the fuck to do with Glenn Greenwald anymore. The biggest difference on the right is numbers and discipline. We'll dig into the numbers later, but discipline is really the key. This grouping spends no time taking one another to task, zero. The larger point here is that for as many names as I just mentioned, you have as many opinions. These are just people, people with platforms. Some of their platforms are enormous and funded by corporate interests. Some are smaller and independent, but they're all platformed in one way or another. They speak, people listen. And whether you're writing for the New York Times with peer reviews, editors, senior editors, or an ombudsman, or you're a solo podcaster spitting and spewing your stuff to the masses, you carry with you a responsibility to your audience to do the work and to show your work because sourcing matters. You've probably heard this one before, but opinions are like assholes. Everyone has one and they usually stink. Aside from the responsibility to your audience, the other point to carry with you as we dissect our three subjects today is the concept of the mainstream media. I feel like we should talk about this one before we move forward because it's one of those lazy and broad concepts that make me uncomfortable. So let's talk about our little universe first, the podcast ecosystem. Realize that these figures change all the time, but here's a snapshot of the top 10 news podcasts on the charts as of when I wrote this episode. Here's one through 10. Number one, The Daily from the New York Times. Number two, Dan Bongino, Cumulus. Three, The Ben Shapiro Show. Four, Up First by NPR. Five, The Morning Wire on Ben Shapiro's network. Six, Bad Bets from Rupert Murdoch's Wall Street Journal. Seven, Pod Save America by the former Obama bros. Eight, Bannon's War Room. Nine, Louder with Crowder, conservative Steven Crowder. Ten, The Glenn Beck Show. So that's a quick snapshot in time. Seven of the top ten news shows are from conservative or ultra-conservative outlets. This isn't a history or politics or government subcategory, mind you. This is the main category of news podcasts. So now let's look at the news news. Pay close attention to the numbers as we review the outlets themselves. Let's start with the broadcast news. Third quarter ratings have ABC World News in the lead with 8.7 million total viewers. NBC Nightly News with 7.3 million. Can you believe anybody even watches these fucking shows anymore? I don't know the last time I've seen any of these. Anyway, NBC Nightly News with 7.3 million and CBS Evening News with 5.4 million. Peer into the prime demo of 25 to 54 and the numbers drop precipitously to 1.7 million, 1.4 million and 980,000 respectively. Moving to cable news, here's a look at the top 10 rated cable news shows as of the same period. The number one show pulled in about 3.2 million nightly viewers and the 10th brought in about 1.5, just for context. In order, here they are. Number one Fox News Fucker Carlson Tonight. Number two Fox News The Five. Number three
4: Fox News
0: Sean Hannity. Number four
4: Fox News
0: The Ingram Angle. Number five
1: Ooh MSNBC.
4: Seriously, that was my line.
0: Knock it off, you two. The Rachel Maddow Show. Number six
4: Jesus Christ Fox News.
0: Special Report with Brett Baer. Number seven
4: Fox News.
0: Fox News Primetime. Number eight
4: Ugh, fuck my life. Fox News.
0: Gutfeld, number nine.
4: Fox News.
0: Outnumbered, and rounding us out at number ten is no. Say it.
4: I can't. I'm. I'm done.
0: Rounding out our top ten is Fox News with America's Newsroom.
4: Ah, oh, horseshit.
0: Observation number one should be clear. Nine of the top 10 cable news shows are conservative shows on Fox. Pair that with the fact that seven out of 10 of the most popular news podcasts on any given week are also conservative, and I think we can dispense with the whole liberal media bias concept as we press forward here. Observation number two, slightly less obvious until you hear it this way, is that cable news shows in the podcast we mentioned routinely criticize the so-called mainstream media, when in fact, by the numbers, They are the mainstream media. (gasps) The other takeaway is the numbers themselves. Impressive, I suppose, until you consider our subjects today. Jon Stewart joined Twitter for the first time this year. In a matter of months, he's accumulated 1.2 million followers despite only publishing a handful of tweets. His new podcast, The Problem with Jon Stewart, debuted at number 20 for all podcasts. And his Apple TV show is already the highest downloaded unscripted show on Apple's platform to date. Numbers for Dave Chappelle's latest special, The Closer, aren't yet available, but we can make an educated guess based on his prior shows. His special Sticks and Stones reportedly reached 25 million viewers. And Joe Rogan is still the biggest podcast in the world with a YouTube universe also that blows every other pundit we mentioned here away. It's estimated that his monthly podcast listenership is around 20 million. His YouTube channel has 11 million subscribers, which represents only a fraction of his reach, considering how many people rip off his content to do commentary on his commentary. Bottom line, our three subjects today are more than pundits, more than public figures or celebrities. They are platforms unto themselves. And it's through this lens that I want to view their recent headline-making turns. So let's get into the quickie subjects with an examination of the phenomenon known as Independent Platform Man.
5: He's taking on the mainstream and corporate
2: big guys. He shows on YouTube, Apple, Netflix, and Spotify. He got no time to pay attention
5: to the lame-ass press. He got a really great sleep on his Casper mattress. He's pissing everything from vaccines to IRA. Drive and race independent platform man. You're so fucking weird. And I'm up while the dawn is breaking. Even though my heart is aching, I should be drinking
3: a toast to absent friends instead of these.
0: Quickie number one. All Chappelle Breaks Loose. Like most Chappelle drops, the closer came in quietly with a solemn, then funny trailer featuring Morgan Freeman.
5: Five specials in as many years. How do you close a body of work that profound?
0: Turns out Chappelle answered this question by closing out this remarkable run with a show dedicated almost exclusively to chastening the transgender community. If you're a Chappelle fan, the special had a few laughs, a familiar rhythm, and the several pregnant pause, I'm going to say something really important and clever, followed by a really distasteful joke that makes you reel with discomfort moments. In terms of a storytelling arc, there's no one better in the business for my money. I've enjoyed much of his work and appreciate the craftsmanship. The wink and the nod followed by a hammering blow. And it was clear he went into this looking to pick a fight and ready for the blowback. And blowback there was. The closer was instantly thrust into the national conversation and has shown impressive endurance as a lot of people are still talking about it, and for good reason. But this isn't about his craft, or the classic defense that he and others employ about comedians have the cultural right responsibility even to say the uncomfortable, push the envelope, or live entirely out of bounds. It's about some very fundamental flaws in his narrative and a complete lack of awareness of the position he occupies in the world. I'm not jumping up and down calling him a transphobic asshole.
4: That's my job.
0: And trying to cancel him. Instead, I wanted to take him at his word that this is a performance and speak to the nature of it.
5: Gender is a fact. You have to look at it from a woman's perspective.
0: Now, this statement has been written about and covered a bunch. It's factually incorrect, which wouldn't be as big of a deal, maybe, if virtually the entire fucking performance hadn't been built around it. So let's talk facts before we address this further. According to Simona Giordano, director of medical ethics at Manchester University Medical School, the, quote, biological categories of male and female are blurred. We know today that not just the X and Y chromosomes, but at least 12 others across the human genome govern sex differentiation and at least 30 genes are involved in sex development, end quote. So I've gone through a bit of corporate training with respect to gender, sex, sexuality, and identity and dug further into it with our LGBTQ plus episode on language and I'm still not an expert. But anyone who calls sex or gender a black and white issue has a science problem on their hands. This is complicated stuff and we're still developing science, language, and psychology around gender identity and sexuality. Here's what is a fact. Those who belong to the LGBTQ community are marginalized and there are structural and cultural impediments to allowing them to fully and safely realize their identities. Trans people in particular are subjected to more violence in everyday life and discrimination within the carceral and judicial systems. So to base an entire routine around this false premise is extremely problematic. The argument in defense of Chappelle's framing of the routine typically centers around two things. One, gender and sexuality aren't settled science, therefore we're free to interpret it as we see fit. And the other is essentially, lighten up, it's a comedy routine. Here's the problem with both. First off, gender and sexuality as a spectrum is not settled science in that we still have a lot to learn. But what is settled is that neither is binary. Therefore, you cannot have a binary approach and a false supposition. The latter argument is more compelling. Hey, it's just comedy, free speech. And beyond just free speech, Dave Chappelle himself belongs to two protected classes. He's a black man and a comedian. Here's what I would say to that, because arguments involving speech are critical. It's important to divorce ourselves from the subject matter at times to really explore meaning and circumstances. Dave Chappelle isn't just doing dick and fart jokes. This isn't The Chappelle Show either, which satirized life with absurd portrayals and characterizations. I'm sorry, but Dave Chappelle no longer belongs to the class of comedian that relies on making observations or just even toilet humor. He's constructed a persona as a social commentator, in winning the Mark Twain Award, he talked passionately about his craft, his art form, and the appreciation for all those who have the courage to engage in it, whether he agrees with their stances or not. And here's the important part, whether he knows what they're saying is in their hearts or not. Take a listen.
5: I know comics that are very racist, and I watch them on stage, and everyone's laughing, and I'm like, mm, that mother means that Don't get mad at them, don't hate them. We go upstairs and have a beer, and sometimes I even appreciate the artistry that they paint their racist opinions with. Man, it's not that serious. The First Amendment is first for a reason. The Second Amendment is just in case the first one doesn't work out. (laughs) He told the truth. There's something so true about this genre, when done correctly, that I will fight anybody that gets a a true practitioner of this art form's way, because I know you're wrong. This is the truth and you are obstructing it. I'm not talking about the content, I'm talking about the art form.
0: So I'm focusing on his words here like a lawyer establishing state of mind. This is how Chappelle has crafted the narrative around his art form in order to absolve him and all others. Notice how he says, not the content, the art form. So this is interesting. You have a black man in America defending the absolute right of free speech, especially if it's shrouded in what might arguably be the most subjective of all art forms, and even if it attacks his race and position in society. And he's since doubled down saying that the community has every right to engage with him on his terms, and that we should be turning our animus towards the corporate state and the media, still absolving himself of any sort of responsibility because his art form is protected.
5: I want everyone in this audience to know that even though the media frames this, that it's me versus that community, it's not what it is, do not blame the LBGTQ community for any of this shit, this has nothing to do with them, it's about corporate interests and what I can say and what I cannot say.
0: So the defendant has entered his defense that all is fair and protected in comedy that if you possess a microphone and a stool, you can say anything you want. doesn't have to be funny. It's the effort that counts. Let's round out the closer with the device that Chappelle employs to prove his thesis. In the special, he talks about his relationship with a trans woman whom he befriended, Daphne Dorman. Daphne was a trans woman and aspiring comedian who eventually came inside Chappelle's circle. And by all accounts, this circle is a pretty terrific place to personally be and professionally be as well. And over the years, their friendship matured, and he even invited Daphne to open for him at a show. And according to him, she was terrible. He said she was situationally very funny, but her routine needed a lot of work. So they worked on it. They grew even closer, and he considered her a great friend. Daphne died by suicide, and I believe Chappelle was genuinely devastated by the loss of his friend. He even paid for her funeral. Kept her work and her memory alive and used her in this special to demonstrate how he couldn't possibly be transphobic because of his close relationship with her. Dave Chappelle, black male comedian in America, used the argument, I can't be transphobic, some of my best friends are trans, and he didn't catch the irony. The fact that gender is not a fact is available to anyone open enough and willing to do the work. Associating with marginalized people doesn't mean you're not part of subjugating them, And in Chappelle's case, he's no longer a comedian on a stage with a mic and a stool. He's not even just a celebrity anymore. He's a platform. And being a platform comes with a far greater responsibility than just being a person in the world with opinions or even jokes. When he did his special 846 about the murder of George Floyd, it was understood that this was social commentary from a comedian, not a routine. It was powerful and designed to teach. He wanted us to listen and to see him on a platform, and so we did. So when he took the stage again in the closer and delivered more social commentary with some humor and irony baked in, this time it was just comedy? Just for shits and giggles? Some of the interpretations of comedy are the responsibility of the audience to just let go, just laugh, be in on the joke, even if it hurts. But Chappelle has reached the point that George Carlin reached, The point where he said, I'm bigger than this act, and I don't care what happens next. This place is fucked up, and I have shit to say. And if you're going to toggle back and forth between social commentator and shits and giggles comedian, you better let people know. Dave Chappelle wants it both ways, but that's no longer an option that's available to him. He concluded by declaring that everyone needs to stop punching down on, quote, his people. But on the heels of him punching down on others with a routine based on a false premise and a lackluster conclusion, I have a trans friend, it certainly felt hollow.
5: I want to shout out all the young people who have had the courage to go out and do all this amazing work protesting. I am very proud of you.
0: Protest. Unless you're protesting me. Is, oh, honey, I pay my Quickie number two, John Stewart misses a loud dog whistle Jon Stewart is back And I think it's fair to say that he was sorely missed His absence during the Trump years was palpable But all is forgiven now that those days are over
1: mm, Really? Are they though?
0: Yeah, good point Well, it's good to have him back anyway Stewart's Apple TV show and complimentary podcast have been solid and met with pretty positive reviews for the most part. What makes Jon Stewart such a powerful figure in the media is his transcendence of his comedic roots into social commentator much in the way Chappelle had evolved prior to this last special. Stewart is both person and platform and his words have the ability to affect real change. So when he suddenly left us, we felt a real loss, but we understood that he had fully exploited a genre of satire.
3: At a certain point, I was like, I don't know what else to do with this, and so I didn't want to stay just because I could. I'd just done it long enough, and so I thought, well, let me just—it was just time. I thought, like, the audience needed a fresh perspective. I needed a fresh perspective. Like, I just—I just felt done. Like, I was more—I was more mad about shit than than inspired.
0: And when he returned, there was a sense that a little bit of balance had been restored to the universe. If John Stewart was ready to re-enter the arena. Maybe we could, too. His debut show on military burn pits found a mature Stewart with access to the highest tiers of the military and an ability to shame them into admitting wrongdoing. Very, very few public figures have the ability to shift the conversation and focus attention with the brightest of spotlights, as does Stewart. When the episode featuring jamie diamond of jp morgan chase dropped i was excited to see where he went with it this is certainly more of my wheelhouse and if stewart was going to take a swing at dismantling the corrupt corporate system we live in who better to undress than jamie diamond but as excited as i was to watch him expertly dismantle diamond i kind of left disappointed by the show because of one huge blind spot now, overall it was an interesting discussion that i encourage unfuckers to listen to because they're really talking about big ideas Capitalism, corporate influence, tax structures, etc., and they tend to agree on certain topics like taxation, closing carried interest loopholes, doing more for those in need, etc. But the nature of the topics made the conversation largely philosophical, with Diamond continuing to stress classic talking points of efficient markets or how capitalism lifts people out of poverty. And while Stewart tried to repeatedly shift the focus back to the responsibility of the moneyed class and large corporate interests that Diamond represents... Diamond pretty definitely maneuvers the conversation back to how the system is more responsible for failing citizens. Hey, we pay people a living wage and offer healthcare to all, so we're doing our part. To which Stewart retorts, but you're lobbying against those things that would support people that don't work for you. All I can do is what I do, rebuts Diamond. Don't blame me. Blame the system. Blah, blah, blah. I don't think this episode will resonate as much as the others because as we've demonstrated over year's worth of material on this show, the big economic and socioeconomic conversations don't really fit into an hour. If you're going to come at someone as skilled as Jamie Dimon, you have to be as laser-focused on an issue as Stuart was with burn pits or his legendary advocacy for first responders of
3: 9-11. Behind me, a filled room of 9-11 first responders. And in front of me, A nearly empty Congress. Sick and dying, they brought themselves down here to speak to no one. Shameful.
0: When he's focused, and because he has such a large and powerful platform, perhaps no one is better than Jon Stewart at moving an agenda through the power of empathy and persuasion. Maybe that's why I was stunned by his interaction with Jamie Dimon. Not because I think he was outfoxed by another master or failed to move the needle in one direction or another, but because it was something that he missed. Something that once I heard it for the second time in the show, I fixated on it for the balance of the interview. He missed it the first, second, and every time thereafter. You look at the inner city schools where half the kids don't
3: graduate and obviously largely minorities. You know, we want to fix the inner city schools. We don't teach nutrition and healthcare in our inner city schools. Teachers from the inner city schools, you can't
0: say that corporate taxes are why we failed at inner city schools. Just like the U.S. military does the best job in the world, in my opinion, of taking kids out of inner cities and giving them haircuts and train, having teamwork. Rather than dissect a brand new show or replay this particular episode blow by blow, I wanted to draw attention to this specific issue. The reliance by the money class and conservative leading figures on the classic inner city trope. Unfuckers have heard their fair share in our examinations of Milton Friedman's language surrounding issues with urban school districts and how government failed the black community. To oversimplify things, here's what Friedman, for example, got right and what he got wrong. Education is a vital foundation for economic development of individuals and communities, an essential building block to success. So when schools lack the proper funding and resources to deliver a comprehensive educational environment, the products, i.e. the children, fail to reach their potential and are destined to perform poorly in society and the workforce. In this, Uncle Dick Nugget is correct that this structural basis, designed and implemented by the government, was and is still flawed. But his answer was to have school choice rather than fixing the funding mechanisms. See, in this country, we allow for local municipalities to collect and distribute tax revenues to school districts instead of taking a more equitable approach. So a poor economic area with a lower tax base will have less money for schools, it's pretty simple. Friedman focused less on this structural reality and more on the lack of freedom to pursue an education in another district, no matter how impractical this might be. Don't like your underfunded, shitty school? Travel to another district. This is stupid and it doesn't get to the root of the issue. I bring this up because poor performing schools have long been blamed for poor education and performance among black and brown people in the United States. Those damn democratic urban areas are poorly run and leave these communities behind. It's coded language for black people don't know how to govern themselves. It always has been. So when someone is educated and tuned to coded and aggressive language as Stuart allows this concept to repeatedly live within a conversation without pushing back, it inadvertently validates this claim. So here's a reality check. Here are the top 10 worst performing school districts in the nation. Mobile County, Alabama, Bethel, Alaska, Apache County, Arizona, Mississippi County, Arkansas, Fresno, California, Bent County, Colorado, Hartford, Connecticut, Sussex County, Delaware, Hamilton County, Florida, and Stewart County, Georgia. You have to go down to number 30 to find a true urban district, which is Newark, New Jersey, and fuck New Jersey anyway sorry in terms of outcomes these are the worst schools not new york not chicago not los angeles none of the inner city urban boogeymen, black city schools poor america from connecticut to alaska education is a poverty issue not a race or urban issue and education isn't the only inner city symbol that makes it into conservative talking points hand-in-hand with education, is always violence. Our violent inner cities run by Democrats. It's one of the most popular talking points during election cycles for Republicans. All them blacks with guns running around murdering one another. They have to help themselves before anyone else can. Black-on-black crime. All part of the inner city trope. So once again, let's look at the numbers. Here are the top 10 states for murders per capita and how they vote in presidential elections. Louisiana, red state. Missouri, red state. Nevada, blue state. Maryland, blue state. Arkansas, red state. Alaska, red state. Alabama, red state. Mississippi, red state. Tennessee, red state. South Carolina, red state. You get the fucking picture. David Sirota wrote an article for Bill Moyers a few years back about the phenomenon of the term, quote, inner city specifically in reference to Paul Ryan's frequent usage of it back then. And since Lee Atwater let the cat out of the bag that part of the Southern strategy was to cease using words like the N-word and opt instead for coded language like inner city, it's a little easier to make these accusations. But Sirota went a step further to prove the case, using technology to review 5 million books and texts going back 200 years. And what he discovered was this. The term inner city essentially wasn't used for the first century and a half of American history and then it became popular in the mid 1960s. And it didn't just gradually become popular, it abruptly and suddenly became popular in a very specific time period. Anything ring a bell about that particular time period? Right, exactly. The term basically only started being used in the lead up to and immediate aftermath of the civil rights movement's legislative successes. This is to say the term only became part of the vernacular at precisely the moment the conservative political backlash to the civil rights movement came into vogue, end quote. Over the course of our time together on Fuckers, we'll drill further into issues of violence and education. These are just two of the tributaries that flow from racialized language that provides cover for the corporate class to point fingers away from the problem that Stewart really was attempting to get to the bottom of but allowing this specific characterization to be repeated as often as he did was a huge miss in Stewart's otherwise good interview with Diamond. But it was a miss large enough that Diamond was able to weasel out of Stewart's more pointed questions. It felt like he was so focused on moving to the larger argument about the role of corporations in lobbying and legislative process that he let his suppositions be undermined by callous and cheap concepts. Quickie number three, Rogan Not-So-Rogue. Joe Rogan is no stranger to conflict. His entire persona has been constructed around the idea of masculinity, conflict, and combat. As a colleague of his recently noted, Rogan is still and has always been the conspiracy loving hyper-masculine jaded character that he played on news radio, the sitcom that first made him somewhat famous. As a comic, he was aggressive and confrontational gaining internet fame by calling out fellow comic Carlos Mencia for stealing jokes. For years, he sat in the announcer's chair at mixed martial arts events, and then many, many years ago, he started recording his thoughts and conversations and putting them out into the world in the form of a podcast. No one could have predicted where Rogan would be today, least of all, Rogan. And where is he exactly? Forgetting the YouTube universe for a second, which, as I mentioned earlier, is larger than just his 11 million subscribers, his show boasts, but the incalculable number of clips and shows that others dissect. His amplified video reach is obscene. But to equal just his podcast reach, you would have to combine the reach of Chris Hayes and Rachel Maddow, and Al Franken, David Packman, Ben Shapiro, and Steve Bannon as well, and Russell Brand and Steven Crowder. That's right. Put their audience and listener reach together, and you just about equal Rogan's. So where does Rogan stand on, I don't know, stuff? Damn divino. So let's trigger everybody by playing a clip of Glenn Greenwald talking to Matt Taibbi about Joe Rogan to really drive this home.
2: But he is liberal politically in every way. I mean, he he loves Bernie. Um, but what Sean said was that he's culturally conservative by which he doesn't mean he's conservative on social questions. Cause again, he's pro gay rights pro abortion. Um, you know, you go down the list, but he's culturally conservative in the sense that like he tells risky jokes. He likes to hunt. He seems like kind of a bro. And that his point was that for liberals problematic. Yeah. That culture matters more than politics. The culture wars matter to them more than politics. They don't actually give a shit about politics liberals. They don't care about rearranging material distribution or challenging corporatism or imperialism. What they care about are cultural signals. When the vast bulk of the population are way more like Joe Rogan than they are like Kamala Harris.
4: I literally might punch you in the face right now.
0: (laughs) Plenty of unfuckers have written in to say, Max, seriously, fuck this guy. And I'm with you. I don't love what Glenn has become or some of the things that he says or choices that he makes, but it doesn't in the least way diminish my respect for his work on the security and surveillance state, and my experience listening to Joe Rogan pretty much aligns with what Glenn is saying here. Rogan is not my cup of tea personally. I don't want to hit the gym with him, don't want to hunt with him, and I don't even think he's the smartest person in the room. But I think he's actually aware of that, which makes him a good listener. But recently, controversy surrounding him has reached a new level because of his stance on vaccinations, which is... I actually don't know. I read an article about young people who were vaccine hesitant and got vaccinated because Rogan said it was safe. And I've seen plenty of evidence suggesting Rogan personally believes that certain people are equipped to knock out COVID with vitamin infusions, a healthy workout regimen, and monoclonal antibodies. But not everyone. Point being, good luck putting him in a box. Here's a better way to look at it. Why even try? Well, because he has a platform and it's enormous. So now it's a responsibility, and we're all paying attention, as evidenced by the controversy surrounding Sanjay Gupta's recent appearance on his show. Ivermectin is a drug that is commonly used as a horse dewormer. So it is not a lie to say that the drug is used as a horse dewormer.
5: CNN's Don Lemon is hitting back at Joe Rogan after the podcast host's heated interview with the network's chief medical correspondent, Sanjay Gupta went viral. The chief
4: medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, sat down for a three hour one-on-one with controversial podcast host, Joe
2: Rogan. A great time. example of this comes in the phenomenal shape of Joe Rogan, who because of his unique media position, having his own direct relationship with the people that watch his content, He has a unique opportunity and a unique voice and is able to confront misinformation as he sees it, when he sees it. As a result of this, his conversation with Sanjay Gupta from CNN had many fascinating points. Sanjay Gupta from CNN, he made an effort to speak directly to people who are still too thick-headed to listen to science and get the damn shot. What did he do? He sat down with one of the most outspoken and popular, unfortunately, vaccine skeptics, Joe Rogan. Watch And Don Lemon essentially makes Gupta sit there during this struggle session where he's like, (laughs) we didn't do anything wrong, right, Sanjay?
0: So Gupta appeared and before they got into what was actually a pretty good discussion, he was forced to defend CNN's claim that Rogan had taken ivermectin, which in veterinary circles is a horse dewormer. The problem with how this flew around the ether is that CNN made it seem like Rogan was advocating for people to skip the vaccination and take horse dewormer if they got COVID. So here's what really happened. Rogan got COVID. His doctor, medical doctor, prescribed vitamin injections, the human form of ivermectin, and monoclonal antibodies, the, quote, kitchen sink as he described it. Rogan took CNN to task in the Gupta interview. Then Don Lemon brought Gupta back on CNN to make him relive the interview and appear to double talk about ivermectin and still take Rogan's words completely out of context. In the media's breathless attempt to siphon Rogan's massive audience, it wound up confusing the issue more than necessary and taking Rogan's rather benign and isolated statement about what a real medical doctor prescribed and turned it into a multi-night headline story with hundreds of reaction videos that only serve to confuse us the unsuspecting population more than necessary. So why end with Rogan? We've argued that Chappelle has a huge blind spot. Stewart missed an opportunity to hear a dog whistle and refute it. What was Rogan's blind spot? In this case, I don't think it's his. It was ours. This isn't a defense of Joe Rogan the man, the host, the media figure. Joe Rogan is a fine listener who nabs incredible guests and got into the podcasting game early enough to amass an audience that Spotify was willing to pay $100 million to get in front of. And that's the point. Rogan is not the brass ring in this scenario. You are. We are. Spotify paid him this money to get to us, the people who flock to the platform and consume the content. Like I said in the beginning, the goal of this episode isn't just to take performers to task, but to make people recognize that the power is in their hands. The power to be discerning, to push for sources, to ask these hosts and men with platforms to recognize the power of their position means they have a responsibility to do the work, source the work, and improve upon the work as we evolve together. And so do we. In breaking free of the conventions of mainstream media, we've seen a surge in media stand-ins, this show included, that give the appearance of independence and objectivity. But there is no such thing. It just doesn't exist. The three men today are just that. Men. Men with frailties and flaws, who espouse certain views and create a cult of personality around them. And just as they cannot hide from their influence behind a, I'm just a comic, or I'm just asking questions... As consumers, we have to do better than to align ourselves dogmatically around their personas. Each of us is free to enjoy these men or any of the other pundits and social commentators we highlighted earlier. But it's our responsibility as consumers to also embrace the writers and the thinkers. Give me Amy Goodman, Jeremy Scahill, Paul Krugman, Adam Tooze, ta Coates, David Sirota, Noam Chomsky, Cornell West, Murtaza Hussein, Peter Moss, James Risen, Jane Mayer, Naomi Klein, Liliana Segura, Christiana Amanpour, Spencer Ackerman, Adam Serwer, Laura Flanders, and Richard Wolf all day, every day, over anyone we've covered here today. They do the work. They credit their sources. Think, evolve, reframe, and learn. And yes, I still love Matt Taibbi, even if I find his podcast unlistenable and a few unfuckers have voiced their displeasure with him. The closer doesn't make 846 less powerful, but it makes Chappelle less powerful. Jon Stewart's blind spot doesn't make him less important, but it shows that even he isn't infallible. And Joe Rogan probably isn't what you think he is, but the better question is, why does it matter? These men are not the message they're just men men with ideas we've given too much of ourselves over to it's okay to allow them to introduce subjects just don't let them have the final word otherwise we allow these big ideas to become more about them than the people who are affected by them and we wind up killing ourselves in the process of defending the person in the platform rather than the ideas all the while The rest of the pundit class seeks to siphon the attention we give those with the largest platforms to position themselves as the messenger and steal your attention. Divide us as a people and amplify the rhetoric around the issues instead of tackling the issues themselves. Check your own bias. Beware of blind spots. Recognize the responsibility on both sides of the platform. Here endeth the quickie.
1: This was like seven thousand fucking words. What well, part of quick didn't this motherfucker get? This shit isn't easy, you know. Audio clips, four hundred audio clips and it's music, fixing his flubs and coughing and I mean, give me uh, a Manny?
4: We're uh we're still here.
1: Uh
4: Taking
2: on the mainstream and corporate big guys. With shows on YouTube, Apple, Netflix, and Spotify. he got no time to pay attention to the lame-ass press. he got a really great sleep on his Casper mattress. He's pissing everything from vaccines to IRM. Hit subscribe and rate. Independent
1: platform, man. You're still a weirdo. See,
2: because it used to be that way. They would say something and no one would have recourse. Do you know what this but is? But when you're yeah. saying something, and it, then the person you're saying it about has literally ten times the audience you do. You dumb motherfucker. Do you know what you did? You just proved my point. The show notes, Calling out listeners one by one. Show notes. Bloopers
4: thank yous. It's so much fun.
0: So scale of 1 to 1,000, how much did you hate that episode?
4: I didn't hate it as much as it mentally and physically exhausted me. Mm. I just realized that I've been clenching my jaw for a whole hour. (laughs) Ow. All
0: right, so let's move into show notes 99. So last week, I kind of hinted that I thought that the Isms episode would kind of fall on its face. And it didn't. We had so many Amazing responses to that show, so I thank you. I mean, maybe a lot of it was just people being like, uh, maybe we should email him now because he thinks he did such a bad job, and you're just coddling my feelings. That's possible. But we'll get to those, but first we have to thank the people that sent us in some donations and supported us with memberships, starting with Jim Q, who bought us five coffees. I was introduced to you fuckers by way of Pitchfork Economics, so I listened and I was an instant fan, or should I say, unfucker. Welcome, to the fold, Jim Q, and thank you for the donation. Very kind. Bxob14 bought three coffees and then became a member. Said happy to support this timely and oh so important podcast and the entire gang, including 99 Manny Faces and the most woke podcast hosts. Hey, Bxob14, thank you for the membership. It means the world. Mitch Smith became a member. Said you guys are the best, and the podcast should be required listening for every citizen. Fuck Ronald Reagan. Trickster became a member holy cow said erudite fuckology again that's bumper sticker worthy some pretty good stuff there and uh Kryn our buddy Kryn as you heard up top thank you Kryn my world traveling friend thank you for the pictures from abroad well done you Queen of Stone also became a member Queen has been in our universe for a little while so thank you for committing for the long haul we appreciate you Kit C became a member said hey all just wanted to drop in and say I fucking love y'all Love to Max, Manny, and the one, the only 99.
2: Do people love you?
4: Yeah, I mean, who wouldn't? <laughs> I don't know.
0: And to round it out, our very, very good friend, El Bacho, became a member. And how I've missed howling to the moon, El Bacho! Thank you, El Bacho. Thank you for supporting us. On the Facebooks, Judy H. said, Dear Max and 99 and Manny, I started listening to Pitchfork Economics because I can't wrap my brain around how money and the economy work. Please consider unfucking our monetary system in one of your shows. (laughs) We have an episode planned tentatively titled The Global Order of Money. So stick with us. Now I'm going to throw it over to 99, who's going to talk about what's happening on the Twitters.
4: Thank you. So we had a lot of tweets this week. Everyone's been very active. A. Fandry said, I've listened to your latest episode about three times now. We like to joke about how boring this kind of deep dive is, but I found it invigorating. Aww. Aristotle says, quote, to be learning something is always the greatest of life's pleasures. End quote. I'm always learning something from Max and crew. That's Thanks, A. Thanks, Fandry. So we had. Uh, you wanna, you wanna say it?
5: Wildman well Bob,
0: Ganoots. <laughs> <Knutson. laughs> he,
4: he said, "This challenged some misconceptions I had, as well as some I've heard others espouse." This episode is an example of why I so enjoy learning from Max, ninety-nine, and Manny.
0: Good stuff, Wildman well Bob.
4: Then we had Roton Rick who said, I literally just had an LOL moment after listening to the heavy isms episode, <laughs> listening to y'all try to pronounce Oregon, especially 99's pirate version, Argon, <laughs> Argon.
0: You did, you did pirate, Ar- pirate that. Argon. Oregon. 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 Oregon.
4: Oregon. Or <laughs> Then we had Deep State Sledge who said, I seem to have only two of my followers who follow my favorite podcast. Please do yourself a favor and subscribe now to UNFTR Pod. And then, from Ken to Kick It, holy fucking shit, UNFTR Pod is a great fucking pod. I said fucking twice. It's a part of the pod. <laughs> it is indeed. Then, Mr. Sales said, 330 million people in the USA. We need at least 1 million likes on this enlightening podcast.
3: Yeah, fuck yeah. Yeah,
4: please do that, Mr. Sales. Brandon Tazo said, hey, I like the podcast. You talked about the prison industrial complex yet? Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Care to elaborate, Max?
0: Yeah, we did. uh, We covered that actually pretty early on, titled Mass Incarceration. And we actually hit the private prison industrial complex in, I think, two or three of subsequent episodes. Um, One was in the... Corporate Irresponsibility episode If I am remembering correctly There was some overlap in Freeze It's the Military where we Talked about the phenomenon of Hyper-militarized domestic law Enforcement Uh, but For this purpose, Mass Incarceration, that episode that I believe came out at the beginning of the year.
4: And check out our friends at Newsbeat who cover this a lot.
0: They do a ton in the carceral sphere. It's amazing, actually. That's one of the things that they do incredibly well. And if you go to usnewsbeat.com, I think that's the website, right? Yeah. There is a page on that site which is essentially a compendium of all of the work that they've done on mass incarceration and the interviews with some really mind-blowing experts over the last three or four years and put together what we consider to be probably the seminal piece of research on mass incarceration It's just a tremendous thing
4: yeah and i'll link in show notes to make it super easy for you
0: there you go so on instagram TaterDad 2012 hey the world was supposed to end in 2012 remember that that was weird. Mm-hmm. Tater Dad 2012 said, Great episode. As always, I've learned something new and got renewed in my progressive soul. Fuck Ronald Reagan. Love 99. With three hearts. Damn. Thanks, Tater Dad 2012. Glad the world didn't do you end. You
4: think Tater Dad was born in 2012?
0: Probably not.
4: You don't think it's a nine year old?
0: Probably not.
4: Did I do that math right? 10? <laughs> oh, God. What year is it? <laughs>
0: many of you did write in some really thought-provoking things. So, Betsy S. said, Holy fucks, Max, the isms episode was amazing. Since she said, 99, I'm glad to hear you're interested in the mental health issues and how Reagan totally fucked it up. Best of luck. You guys are doing a fan-fucking tabulous job. And love to Manny, too. P. Slippery got in touch with us to say, I know you think this week's past episode was dense, but it turned out to be the perfect companion to the book I'm working through right now, which is a collection of essays by Eugene Debs.
4: P. Slippery, what book is it? We'll put it in our bookshop.
0: There you go. Yes, we will. And Ray Fraff, our buddy Ray Fraff, wrote in, said, despite your self-deprecation throughout the last Isms episode, Max, I was enthralled from start to end. Appreciate you as always, Ray Fraff. I hope all is well in your world. Uh, and I'm going to take a small excerpt from an incredible exchange that I had with an unfucker named Daniel P., I really appreciated how the most recent episode, Capital Social Fascia Lib to Marxism, concluded by saying that the creators of all this ism share the critically important belief that it is both possible and desirable to achieve a good life for everyone. I think a critical next step is to realize that some of the most powerful philosophies and shapers of society throughout history have not shared that belief. Instead, they believe that not all people can have or should have a good life. So I humbly suggest that you explore the pattern of thought in future episodes. So, like I said, this is just a portion of the incredible, well reasoned response where Daniel pointed out that other progenitors of less desirable isms have had as much or more impact on history, and I couldn't agree more. And I just wanted to thank Daniel for building on the episode and leading us down more paths. So, Elena S said, You do a fantastic job. Fantastic. Where'd that come from? <laughs> Suddenly I'm in Rochester. Elena S said, You do a fantastic job of explaining economics, a subject I consider extremely boring. Great work. But It's giving me a headache Just trying to understand The relationship between Adam Smith, Joseph uh, Schittenberger And Milton Ojete Friedman Makes me feel like I'm back in college uh, So I reached out uh, Elena's an awesome listener and We reached out back and forth A little bit And I did ask her uh, How we would say In Mexican Unfucking the Republican, she said say You would say Des chingadole a la república There are other words for fuck But chingar is the best And the most Mexican Mexican profanity Is quite beautiful Because of all of the feeling It evokes so, bienvenido a des a la república. Fun, right? Fucking A. Thanks, Elena. And Patrick M. wrote in once again, illustrating the power of intellect found throughout this unfucking ecosystem. We had a wonderful exchange. But to be clear, Patrick, who's not a fan of our take on progressives within the Democratic Party, and with a pretty reasoned argument, here's an excerpt. Although the structures that keep us locked in duopoly are formidable, the tide can turn. In the interim, I would ask that you don't make any favorable references to previous third-party candidates, Debs, Roosevelt, La Follette, since you presumably would not have supported them in their time either. Ooh, burn. Fuck, man. So this exchange was actually much longer, it was very cordial, and that's what I wanted to point out, especially in relation to this quickie episode. I once again have to thank all of you unfuckers for the willingness to engage in constructive dialogue and criticism without devolving into name calling or pettiness so thank you everybody and we had some general feedback as well 99 you want to take some of this on
4: tricks said listening to your show has provided a useful break from my day to day thanks for all you do p.s i propose an unfucking quickie about some of the bright activists saving the world right now that would be great Bill C. said, Max 99 and team, with the recent revelation via new carbon dating techniques that have validated the Vikings coming to America 500 years before Columbus, how about an episode of the royal fucking that Columbus wrought upon the Americas, and Native Americans particularly?
0: I'm sure we'll reference it at some point. We did a little bit in our, well, we didn't really do Columbus in the culture cancel episode. But, But again, on Newsbeat, they interviewed our friend John Kane from Let's Talk Native, who gave a really brutal and cool history of Columbus so check out Newsbeat's feed it was actually it was on Indigenous Persons Day fuck that guy Columbus
4: Stephen A said I'm a Brit in the US I have a couple of questions firstly I love this podcast I'd love if you make an unfucking Britain episode I know there's a lot to unfuck also will you be going deeper into UBI and how it could work
0: it's universal basic income well I just finished Ted Lasso
4: are you doing an Australian accent
0: I don't know (laughs) I'm trying to do that angry guy from Ted Lasso
4: I haven't
0: seen it. Fuck It's a lot of fun.
4: Now you sound like a pirate, sort uh, of like
0: He's angry. Angry Roy Kent.
4: That's still Australian.
0: Oh no. I uh, there's all sorts of accents that we can do with the Britain episode. I'm excited to do it. But Universal Basic Income it's a, it's a, well we've gotten a first look at it here in the United States during COVID, didn't we?
4: We hate this so much. Which part? <laughs> the accent.
0: All of it. i start crying. Well, you're going to hate... You're certainly going to hate the, the UK episode that we do. I mean, truly, truly hate it. Because, you know, I'm not going to be able to contain myself. Sorry.
4: Can you do... Um, All right, love. Can you do it different? <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. Thank you.
0: Thanks a lot. <laughs> I could do a good Jason Statham, though.
4: Oh, is that who you were doing? I don't know. <laughs> is Jason Statham British? He is. Okay. All right. He's just one of those... Bald action man. He's angry.
0: All right, can we just keep going
4: on? You can't. Stop scratching your beard. And the mic. I'm sorry. <laughs> Are we done with that guy? Don't
0: tell everybody I have a beard.
4: Sorry.
1: <sighs>
0: All right. As always, Unfucking the Republic is edited and arranged by Manny Faces Media.
1: Stay tuned for my reaction video of me listening to Max talk about Joe Rogan, Dave Chappelle, and Jon Stewart. And I'm going to put in the title uh, Max from Unfucking the republic and Joe Rogan and Dave Chappelle and Jon Stewart, just in case Max actually gets big, then I'm going to have all the SEO. So, yeah.
0: Our show is lovingly produced by the great and powerful 99.
4: I promise I won't let him do a British accent again.
0: Our fame music was composed by Tom McGovern. Visit tommcgovern.com. The show is hosted by Nigel Tufnell and distributed by MySpace. Email us at unftrpod at gmail. Follow us at unftrpod. Support us at buymeacoffee.com unftr. Visit our book list at bookshop.org slash shop slash UNFTR pod. Get some native roasted coffee at UNFTR.com shop. And read our essays on Substack at UNFTR.substack.com. Hey, 99, how much does it cost to read the essays?
4: Free 99.
0: <laughs> I love you. See you later.
4: Bye.
3: Pinky, are you pondering what I'm pondering? I think so, Brain,
2: but how can you have a duck dynasty if none of the people are ducks?
3: Damn it, Pinky. Can't you get at least one fucking thing right?
0: <laughs> Chris Hayes, Lawrence O'Donnell, Mehdi Hassan, Brylan Ty- Tyler Cohn. Fuck. But Sirota went a step further. Hm. So let's trigger everybody by playing a clip of Glenn Greenwald talking to Matt Taibbi about Joe Rogan to really drive this home.
4: I literally might punt you in the face right now. I don't even have to act for this one. <laughs> I'm genuinely angry.